But nevertheless, turn to Revelation 21. Uh, Revelation 21 in your Bible, second last chapter of, of the Bible. And uh, we will uh, make our way through this. As always, my goal is not to solve every riddle you have the book of Revelation. In fact, I won't even make any real attempt at doing any of that. So whatever your, your eschatology is, uh, it likely will not be affected too much. Uh, I am a pan-millennialist right now. I think it'll pan out in the end. And that is my hope. Um, with that, see if you'll stand with me out of reverence for, for God's word. I don't think we'll read the entire chapter, uh, but I think we'll read a good, good chunk of it. John the Apostle writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, beginning in verse 1. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. He who was seated on the throne, behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To a thirsty, I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. He carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain, showed me the holy city Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes and sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, the south three gates, the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Let's go Lord in prayer. Our Father, we ask as always, every time we gather to open up your word, that you would, you would open our, our hearts and our minds and our eyes and our ears, our mouth, our hands and our feet, that we would be transformed by the power of the gospel. As revealed in your word, given to us by your spirit. This is your work. We have looked back at the genesis of Jerusalem and now we look forward to a new Jerusalem, uh, the city that we long for. And may our hope be found in it and, and in no city here. May I decrease so you can increase. In the name of your son we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, how a story begins is important. But how a story ends is equally important. The first story, real story I ever wrote, I was in seventh grade. We had the uh, portfolio do. I don't know if they still do it uh, like they did. They, we, we called it cats, I think. And in seventh grade was uh, the writing portfolio year. I think eighth grade was the testing, or maybe a sixth grade. I don't know. Uh, they're all terrible memories. So for a portfolio that year, we had to write a story. And, and our teacher really did something different that I hadn't really thought of. She, she put a painting up. And uh, it's a painting I've seen off and on ever since, a pretty well-known painting uh, depicting a historical event. We do nothing of any of that. It was just, just a painting up on the screen. And we as a class 
came up with a story, a climax. What is, what is the story happening here? What do we see and, and what do we think happened? And, and we took that, that painting and we had to write a climax. We started with the end of the story. We knew nothing about characters. We knew nothing about scenery. We knew nothing about anything. All we had to present was the climax of the story and the resolution that followed that climax. And once we had it, we had to turn that in and all that good stuff. Then our teacher had us go all the way to the beginning and to start with the story. I think there's some real wisdom in that. Because if you don't know where the story ends, you really don't know how to begin it. And what we get in the Bible is, yes, there is that Genesis with Melchizedek in the story of Jerusalem. It is the city of righteousness where that mysterious figure comes and, and serves as a royal priest for Abraham. When we get to the end of it, we see where, where all of this is, is going. So when we see the city of Jerusalem, we are anticipating this very moment, the day when the new city, the final city of Jerusalem, comes down out of heaven. Well, you'll see here, as, as we've read through this chapter, is if there's a word that should leap off the page at you because of its repetition. And remember, in Hebrew, although this is written in Greek, it's written by a Hebrew, uh, uh, a Jewish man. In the Hebrew language, and lesser extent in Greek, repetition is emphasis. And you'll notice right away that the word new shows up over and over again. In fact, if you, if you read the book of Revelation, the word new shows up over and over again. Although it's a subtle word, it is an important word. The judgment and restoration of God among the nations, which is really what Revelation is about, um, as well as his work in the church and how the end comes. As a result, God creates something new. So let me give you a few examples in Revelation of this word, a, a brief theology of new, if you will. The first is um, a, a new name. It's new names. Uh, and you're going to have to help me back here. It, it got stuck. It's going to do that every once in a while. New names. Uh, Revelation chapter 2, verse 17, the letter to the churches. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Uh, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows but the one who receives it. Um, Likewise, Revelation 3, verse 12, The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of, of God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my new name. Uh, so you see there that throughout the Bible, uh, new names are associated with uh, 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 new identities. God gives his people new names at a, a critical juncture in their life. For example, Abram, which means high father, is changed to Abraham, which means father uh, to a multitude, right? And, and, and which there's irony there. We, we've talked about it in the story of Abraham that his name is high father and he is, he, he, he's without a son, right? But, but God gives him the name father multitude before Isaac or even Ishmael is born. Sarai, which means my princess, is changed to Sarah, which means mother of nations. Jacob, which means deceiver, is later changed to having power with God. Simon, uh, in the New Testament, which means he has heard or to listen, is changed to Peter, meaning rock, right? And on this rock, Petra, I will build my church. You are Peter, Petros. 
So, so names do matter in the Bible. With names comes identity. Go back to our study of Ruth a few weeks ago. Remember that uh, Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, changes her name from Princess Naomi to Mara, bitter. You remember it was the uh, waters of Mara in Exodus. Remember they come up to and they think it's fresh water out in the wilderness and it's bitter? They called it Mara because it means bitter. So Naomi takes for herself a new identity, that of grief, bitterness, sorrow. Christians, too, are given a new name. Not only are we first called Christians in Antioch in the book of Acts, but but we are given a new name in the book of Revelation. Our names becomes his, a new identity in Christ. We are his. We are Christians. Not only that, but there are new songs in uh, Revelation. Uh, Revelation chapter 5, they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll to open its seals. Revelation 14, they were singing a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures, for the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 redeemed from the earth. And this makes sense, of course, right? That there are moments in, in life that require new songs, right? Maybe, maybe you're, you're an artsy type and you, and you fell in love, right? Your first love. Well, well you may want to go write you a, a love song for, for your girl, your guy, whatever it might be. After 9-11, I remember there was a litany of new songs written by artists all over the place. And you remember that, that they would take the new songs and they would put... Um, the scenery, the audio, the audio of, of the towers following, following or interviews with uh, those who were there, eyewitnesses and whatnot. Um, and and so, so they would put a song about 9-11 with witnesses and testimony and scenes of it and really put them together. So what you had was songs for the moment, right? We don't really listen to a lot of these songs anymore. Uh, but at the time, it required new music. The same is true biblically. That when God shows up in mighty ways, we see it is common for new songs to be written. Uh, the songs of Moses is referenced in Revelation, which, which goes back to the crossing of the Red Sea, where Miriam leads the people into a new song, celebrating God's redemption of as an enslaved people out of Egypt in the crossing of the Red Sea. In fact, whenever I was at the Capitol several years ago, helping out with the then Capitol Commission guy, um, they had the old English, uh, or not, uh, no, this was the uh, Hebrew manuscripts. And my job was uh, Exodus, where it was the Song of the Sea. And in the, the manuscript, their old scroll, uh, they took that song that Miriam leads them to sing, and it split it right down the middle. So you would have half a line with a gap followed by the rest of the line. So you had this gap right down the middle. The reason it was written in that way in that manuscript was to remind the reader they are singing of the crossing of the Red Sea. They, it split the poem in half in order to visualize for the reader the crossing of the Red Sea. Uh, this makes sense given uh, new, uh, the need that God is doing something new here in in Revelation. And finally, there are, is new creation. And we get that here in chapter 21, don't we? Verse 2, verse 5, and verse 9. Notice here, God is bringing down. He is, he is recreating. This is new creation language, right? So, so everything will be new. So the quote of the great theologians DC taught from early 90s, God is doing a new thing here. And when God does a new thing, his creative act of redemption is demonstrated once again. So at its heart, the city of Jerusalem is, is, it represents new creation here. 
Speaking of new creation, let's, let's look at that here in verses 1 to 8. Kistemacher writes in his commentator, this cosmic time has been turned into eternity. Separation from God has become intimate communion with him. Death belongs to the past, for the saints drink the water of life. The wicked are in the lake of fire, while the saints are with God and belong to his family. Now, to make this point, uh, John does in chapter 21 what he's done in the entire book of Revelation. And that is he relies on Old Testament imagery and Old Testament passages in order to, to, to show us what this looks like. For example, there in, in verse 1, I saw a new heaven, a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. He's relying on Old Testament imagery. For example, Isaiah uh, 65 um, this is, it's the last Sunday of the year, so it's going to be a stick in the mud, uh, Tommy, so that's, that's okay. Isaiah 65, for behold, I create new heavens and new earth. The former things will not be remembered or come to mind, right? That's, that's Isaiah 65. In, in chapter uh, 66, it says, for just as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make will endure before me, declares the Lord, so your offspring and your name will, will endure. Again, that language is borrowed straight from Isaiah. We can even look at uh, 2 Peter, um, which says, According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So, so this is a new idea, that, that, that God is recreating everything. So redemption, remember, is creation. Where the story begins is where the story is going to end. We have the heavens and the earth in Genesis 1. We have the new heavens and new earth in Genesis in Revelation 21. We get this reference to uh, the holy city in verse 2. The, the, that phrase appears throughout the Old and New Testament. I give you references. It is obvious, an obvious reference to the city Jerusalem. Now, now, it's interesting is that once the curtain in the temple is ripped, Jerusalem is no longer the holy city. Uh, it was the holy city, after all, that crucified the Messiah. And God does not dwell anymore in, the, in a building, but in the hearts of believers. So the holy city becomes the kingdom of God, where its saints dwell. And you see there in verse 3 that God is coming down. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. The word for dwelling place there is literally tabernacle. Same thing in John 1.14, right? That the, that, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us. So God is going to tabernacle with his people. And that is basically the story of the Bible in a nutshell. If, if you want to find a single verse that's going to summarize the entire Bible, it's that right there. The Bible is open, opens up with God and man in communion with one another. Distinct creator creation, but in communion nonetheless. What happens is that man rips that communion apart. And so the rest of the Bible is, is man trying to bring communion, intimacy back with God, but can't on their own because man is too fallen. God must then intervene. God must come down. And, and he does that, first of all, primarily through the temple tabernacle system, the Mosaic law in the city of Jerusalem. But he ultimately does it in his son, who then makes us uh, his uh, his temple, right? That we have, we are, our bodies are a temple. We have the spirit living within us. But here we see God is coming down to dwell, to tabernacle with his people. And notice sin's death in verses four to eight. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore. The former things and that old creation will pass away. 
Now, verse 4 is, is uh, hyperlinking back to uh, Isaiah. Um, oh, I guess I put it up there. Isaiah 25, he will swallow up death for all time. The Lord God will wipe tears away from all their faces. He will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth. And the Lord has spoken. In fact, we could say verse 5 is the center of Revelation. He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. That's the center of Revelation. That right there. All things are new. And what is new is that the end has been conquered. The end or the death itself has been conquered. Sin is no more. It's the, it's, it's the great hope of Revelation, isn't it? And all that corrupted the old creation... You see the list there in verse 8, cowardice, faithlessness, violence, sexual immorality, idolatry, sorcery, all that. It's no more. You see, if there's no sin, there's no death. So if death has been conquered, itself thrown into the lake of fire with the beast and the false prophet and, and the harlot and all that, and, and the dragon, then there is no sin. It is the wages of sin that cause death. Eat of this, this, this tree and you will die. Remove death and sin is no more. In fact, that's made very clear there in verse 8, isn't it? All of these things are thrown to the lake of fire, which is the second death. He puts an end to sin, the end of death, the end of the devil. Well, that leads to the new city um, in verses 9 to 27, the, uh, the, the end of the book, or end of the chapter, rather. Um, and here, although referenced earlier in verse 2, the holy city, New Jerusalem, it's made very clear and developed in verse 9 that at the center of new creation is a new city. And this is the city of Jerusalem. And we see it here in some detail. Now, I say detail. You have to be careful when you say detail in Revelation because it is an apocalyptic book. Right? There's continued debate over how literal should you take a revelation. My, my, I err on, the side of, of, err on the side of too literal than not literal enough. But nevertheless, we, you have to be careful treading here because the apocalyptic imagery are all over the place. I think we'll see some of this here in, in our study of it. Notice that the new city begins with a final wedding. Right? I, I, I love this imagery. The Bible begins with a wedding in Genesis and turns to war. Adam and Eve are married, and then they go to war with the dragon. The Bible ends with a war against a dragon that then gets turned into a wedding. It's almost like God himself was writing the Bible, right? Uh, but that would be foolish thinking, isn't it? All right? But so the so way it does it in Revelation is it, it compares two women, right? So, so in like chapter 19, which we looked at several months ago, I think we've looked at it two, three times this year, um, you get the harlot that rides on the red dragon, right? And we get all the details of the harlot. And then in chapters 20 and 21, you get, you get the bride of Christ. And we are, we are to, to juxtapose those two women here. Um, and, and we see one is, is used by the nations and used by the dragon. Here the bride is, is the center of attention, right? Like every wedding, no one cares. You've heard me say before, um, and at every wedding I've ever gone to or officiated or been dragged to, um, people only care about the groom at one single second in the entire wedding. Unless he does something ridiculous, right? I mean, no, no one cares about the groom. You're there out of necessity, right? Because it would be awkward if there wasn't a groom. But the groom is there, and people only care about the groom when, when, when the music comes and the bride is walking down and everyone gets their first look at the bride, they will then turn and look at the groom to see, ladies, if he's crying yet, right? That's all you care about. If you're not crying, right, no one cares. Back to the bride. 
right? That is all the attention the groom gets in the wedding, right? She's made herself ready. And so you, you, get, you get the harlot that's riding on the dragon who is used by the nations and abuses the nations. Here we get a bride who, who, has, who has made herself ready. She is pure. And notice that with the harlot comes destruction, here with the bride, the church, you get celebration, you get unity, you get love, festivities. Right? It's not an accident that Jesus launches his uh, uh, miracle ministry at a wedding. That imagery of, of the feast and celebration and, and festivity is, is a common one throughout the Bible. So we get this, this final wedding, which then turns, verses 10 to 21, to a final city. You notice there in verse 10 that they come to a great high mountain. In the ancient Near Eastern world, it was believed that gods dwelled on top of mountains, right? Mount Olympus is where the Greek gods lived. And this makes sense since mountains were very difficult to access. Think about it. Hardly anyone, if anyone, had ever reached the top of Mount Everest to what, 20th century? Some of you all can correct me on that. We, we, you just didn't climb mountains. Uh, now, some did, but you would climb the mountain to meet God, right? Um, because that was where the gods came down and man went up. It was the meeting place in the ancient Near Eastern world. You read the Old Testament and you hear, you hear of the kings destroying or not destroying in some cases, in most cases probably, uh, not destroying the high places. Those are altars and areas of uh, sanctuaries, areas of worship on mountains, you would go there to meet, meet with, with the gods. Well, we find that God meets his people on mountains. According to Ezekiel, Eden was on a mountain. Um, so Adam and Eve meet with God there on the mountain. Abraham at Mount Hebron. Moses at Mount Sinai. Elijah at Mount Sinai. Jesus at Mount Transfiguration, the Mount of Olives, the Sermon on the Mount. Right? You, you, you go up the mountains. And you remember, remember that Moses goes to the top of the mountain there. He encounters God 40 days. And what does he find when he gets down? Chaos, the, the, the uh, uh, golden calf and all that. Jesus, when he goes to Mount Transfiguration with uh, three of his disciples, right? Moses took the same amount of people with him. Um, and, he, and they have that, that uh, theophany sort of scene there. What happens when they get to the bottom of the mountain? Chaos. Uh, it's, it's, they purposely mirror each other. You, you meet God up there. But, but you'll notice that the, that, that the disciples meet Jesus at the top of the mountain in all of his glory. So it isn't that God came down, but in this case, God went up with them to, to the mountain. Um, well, that's free. That's not in my notes. I won't charge you for that. But you see here that the city of Jerusalem is itself on a high uh, hill. And so, so it comes down on a high mountain. And then in verses 11 to 15, we get specific descriptions here, okay? Um, now, again, uh, if you go, I hope you will join us all in going to heaven, okay? New city, new Jerusalem, new heavens, new earth. Um, and we can look at these jewels. That's the first thing we see are jewels, uh, and, and they keep popping up over and over again. Uh, now, if you were to pick up, you know, is it literally you, you're walking in, into the new Jerusalem, and you, you grab this item over here and said, that right there is an onyx stone. I, I don't know. I don't know. But the imagery of these jewels is found throughout the Bible, um, for example, in the Garden of Eden, we find some of these stones. Genesis 2.12, the gold of that land is good. We see gold here. Thank you, Tom. Uh, Bedellium and onyx stone are here. Onyx is mentioned here, verse 1115. Um, these also, these stones show up in the priestly garments. Uh, Exodus 28.20, uh, 20, um, it's just, it's just going to be a stick in the mud for some reason. That's okay. I'm going to go ahead and 
shut mine off just in case. Uh, Exodus 28, 20, the fourth row, a barrel, an onyx, and a jasper on the ephod of a high priest. Uh, and they uh, shall be set in gold. So you, we see a lot of gold, onyx, jasper, everything else. Not only do, do we see it described in terms of jewels, um, we see the number 12. It's overwhelming, isn't it? Uh, look, look at this again. Uh, let's start in uh, verse 12. Had a great high wall, 12 gates. The gates had 12 angels. On the gates of the names, 12 tribes. Uh, verse 13 on east side, three gates. So for those of you who went to public school in Owen County, three, okay? And then, and then you're going to get, uh, that's on the east gate. And on the north gate, another three, that is six, right? You see where this is going? And on the west, you're going to get three more. That is nine. Now stick with me, you know, Countyans. On the south gate, you're going to get three more. That is more fingers than you have, right? And the total is 12, right? I mean, it's overwhelming, isn't it? And then it keep, keeps going. The wall of the city had 12 foundations. I don't know what that means. And on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb, Right? So you see here that, that the imagery of 12 is very clear in Revelation, in the Bible in general. Clearly is picking up on, on the 12 tribes of Israel as is made explicitly clear there. Now, if you were to go to the new city, right, and, and you say, all right, when I was alive uh, on, on the old earth, you know, the, the bad days, um, I was a construction worker. And the main thing I did was I built foundations. God, if you don't mind, I mean, I've got all eternity to work this out. You mind if I just go check the foundation of this city? And you're going to go there and you're going to find exactly what I don't know, right? I don't know how foundations work. I study theology and dead guys. I don't know how construction works, okay? Um, um, and, and so, so I, I don't know. Are there going to be 12 gates, three on the north? Three? I don't know. I don't know. But the apocalyptic imagery is made clear, isn't it? That, that what began in Genesis will not be completed to Revelation, which means God will complete what it is that he started. It wasn't an accident that, that Jacob had 12 sons. It was an accident you get 12 tribes. It was an accident that Jesus to chose 12 disciples and you get 12 apostles when Judas is gone and Matthias re replaces him. Those things aren't accidents here. But rather they come to point us to something that is far greater. God is Lord over everything. And by the way, notice it's easy to skip over some of this. The 12 angels, one at each gate. Remember that when uh, Adam and Eve left the Garden of Eden, what did God put there? Cherubim. Now, we can debate all day the difference between cherubim and, and angels. I don't want to chase that rabbit here. We, we've, we've looked at Genesis 3, so we've, we've had that whole talk about uh, divine counsel and, and uh, cosmic beings. But nevertheless, uh, I don't think that's an accident. Clearly picking up on the imagery, there at the gate, you see one of these, these beings. Verse 16 to 21 is more descriptions of, of the new city. Measurements are given in verses 15 to 17. Again, should we take this literally? If you had your uh, uh, tape measure, right? You're up in heaven. I don't know how you got it there, but you know, you snuck it in somehow, right? And, and you started at the, at the east end and you're like, you're going to just start going. You can say, honey, I need you to hold it right there until I stretch it all the way out. Okay, that is one, two. All right. Okay, now let it go, right? But not too fast. Don't smash my finger. I know it's heaven. And you're right. I, I don't know if you're going to get these same exact measurements. I don't know. Right? Again, I studied dead guys in, in cemetery, right? And so I don't know how all that stuff works, you know, and measurements and all that. The point is to see, I believe, that ultimately there is plenty of room in the new city. And we're going to need plenty of room in the new city because there's going to be a multitude of people worshiping Jesus. And so if you want to know the measurements, here it is. 
This is a city. It will start on the east side in Baston. It will end on the west side in Denver. If you go as high as, as is mentioned here, it will knock out all of our satellites. That's a big city. That's a big city. That is a lot of concrete and wood and steel, right? That's, can you imagine decorating that thing? Can you imagine carpeting that thing? My, my goodness. But the point isn't that, that it is a perfect cube and, and, and this is what it's going to look like. But, but rather we are to see that, that, that God will pre- is preparing a place for us right now, Jesus says in John 14. And, and we will be gathered together in unity with the Savior. That's the point. That's the point of it. Finally, there is a final presence, verses 22 to 27. One of the great errors we make in reading Revelation is that we get distracted by purposely uh, mysterious details. We end up missing the point, right? We, th- that is my one beef with reading Revelation. And we've gone through Revelation quite a bit. In fact, you can get on our YouTube page, East Frankfurt Baptist Church, and I walk you through uh, during the peak of COVID for a year. We went through every chapter in the New Testament. You could read everything I had to, or listen to everything I had to say about Revelation at the time. Still not going to answer all your questions about the end times. Um, and in fact, we spent Wednesday nights going through Revelation in a very similar vein. And one of my big beefs is we get so distracted by little details. Does this comment mean satellites are falling out of the sky? I don't know. I have no idea, right? But the point isn't satellites or comets or Cupid or Donner or Blitzen. It's not the point. The point of Revelation is Jesus. And if you miss Jesus, then you're not reading it the way it was intended to. Remember, Revelation was written not to line up your end times charts, but it was written to struggling Christians, many of whom were were on the brink of destruction by a corrupt and unjust state, that it gives them hope. So the point of this chapter is to detail the hope of Christians that all things will be made new. Now, it's been nearly two years under COVID. I've got really good news for y'all. This is not the end of the story. They will come when it will all be no more. Everything will be brand new. And the sufferings of this world will end. Even more than that, to quote David in Psalm 23, we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And it's massive, massive in, in a way that is indescribable despite John's best efforts. Angels at the gates, multiple gates, because so many people are trying to come in. That's the point. And, and we get a hint of this in verse 22, right? I saw no temple in the city. Now, pause there. If, if you know Revelation, you're thinking, uh-oh, the Bible has contradicted itself. I guess I shouldn't be a Christian anymore. I guess I got to read everything Oprah recommends because I'm a worshiper of her kingdom now, Right? Because in Revelation 14, verse 17 says, another angel came out of that temple in heaven. There's a temple somewhere. Now there isn't a temple. This is really the beauty of Revelation. It's, it's why I think there's room for taking things literally, but you've you got to be careful with it. We are not looking for a literal temple. We are looking for what the temple represents. The temple is where God and men dwell. That's the temple. From the Garden of Eden 
to, uh, into Zerubbabel's temple, the temple represents where God and men dwell. That's why Jesus is called the tabernacle. He came the tabernacle among us. That's why we are said to uh, be filled with the temple of God, because God dwells in us. That's all the temple represents. So you do not need a building where God hangs out all day and you can knock on his door and, and, and see, you know, what he's watching on Netflix today. The new Jerusalem is the presence of God with man. The new Jerusalem is the temple. That's what you're supposed to see. I saw no temple in it. Why? Its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. That's the new Jerusalem, right? So anytime someone says, well, I don't, heaven sounds kind of boring because it sounds like one long worship service. First of all, it's because you've never worshiped a day in your life here. And secondly, it's because it is, it is about Jesus. It's not about your fishing trip on the outskirts of, of the gates of heaven. That would be nice, I'm sure. I don't know. But the point of, of the new Jerusalem is Jesus is there. Jesus is there. That's the temple. And since the new city bridges the presence of man and God, a literal building is unnecessary. The new city is the temple. In fact, to, to, to add to the imagery, we, we see in verse 23 and 24, there's no cosmic entities. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory to it. So just like the temple is unnecessary, there's no need for sun, moon, or stars or any of that stuff. Remember that uh, those were given as signs in Genesis 1 and 2. Now we don't need those things. You don't need to know when it's daylight and when it's nighttime. There's no nighttime because Jesus is there. And, and John, who wrote the gospel, says that Jesus is the light of the world. John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, have the light of life. First John 1, 5, this is the message we have heard from him to proclaim to you. God is light and in him is no darkness. And here uh, in the next chapter, Revelation 22, 5, night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Now, remember, darkness is a metaphor for sin and, and folly and, 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 and injustice and corruption and wickedness. Men, Jesus says in John 3, 18, love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. So in John's gospel, you see this play on words with, with day and night. Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, but the last time you see Nicodemus is around the resurrection. You see him in the daytime, right? It is not an accident, right? So, so there is no sin, death, evil, injustice. Therefore, there is no darkness. God is light. Again, the point isn't to focus on the literal where there be, will there be literal cosmic entities? I, I don't know. And that's not really the point of the text. So it shows that what we get in the new Jerusalem is Jesus. Notice finally, there is no fear, verses 25, 27. Its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. Now think about it. Why do you have to shut gates at night? For the same reason you shut your front door and lock it at night. Most crime is done at night not during the daytime. It's not a mystery why that is, right? So if you don't need, so maybe you grew up in a small town. I grew up in a small town. We didn't lock our doors at night. In fact, one time, um, we actually got broken into while we were all there. 
I'll, I'll have to say that for another sermon illustration, but freaked me out. I can tell you, no one believed me until the uh, a Newsless Herald came out a few days later. And there was a string of, of robberies in our area. Did they finally start to believe me? Hey, there was someone in the house last night. I was so scared. I wasn't about to open my eyes. I was playing, not asleep, but dead, right? You know, they can take the rest of you all out. I'm not breathing, right? But you lock your doors at night because, because you're, you're, you're more vulnerable at that time. We don't shut the doors in heaven. Who do you have to fear? All has been taken care of. So too, it goes on, verse 26, they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. Nothing unclean will enter it, nor anyone who has done what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Nothing unclean, everything holy. It itself reigns, not wickedness or filthiness or dirtiness or sin. So what is the point? Well, I, I, I was raised to believe, and I think it's true, that America at its best is an idea. Maybe that's a phrase you're, you're familiar with, that sometimes we call it an experiment, but it's still an idea. And that idea is ordered liberty, that men can be free and yet still ordered. Jerusalem, in a very similar way, at least in the Bible, is an idea. Modeled after the Garden of Eden, whereby God dwells with his people, and its borders will extend to the nations. Jerusalem was the great vision of Israel. However, Jerusalem rarely ever lived up to that standard. Sometimes it did. One great example of this is under Solomon's reign when the Queen of Sheba comes. And she marvels at the wisdom of Solomon, the beauty of Jerusalem and its people. But usually it failed miserably. A good example of this comes from Jesus in Matthew 22, 23. Rather. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, he says, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. How often, Jerusalem, you, you, you have failed. So what we get in the, in the story of Jerusalem is, is, is a history of the broken people of God. The idea of mirroring the holiness of God and reflecting his beauty and light in a dark world is what Jerusalem was called to do, and it's, it's what the church is called to be, isn't it? Light into the world, a city on a hill, salt the earth. We're called to be that. But you only have to be in ministry for 15 minutes to discover that's not the case at all. I was sharing with someone recently who was one temptation that believers have is to feel that I'm the only one struggling with this sin or these sins. I find myself often reminding people that if you knew half of what I've, I've seen in our church and outside of our church, of believers, confessing believers, you would realize you're not alone in this brokenness. There's comfort in that, but there's conviction in that too. We're a broken people, redeemed, but broken people nonetheless. But what we see in the Bible is that God's grace is sufficient even for the people of God. But the day will come when this brokenness will be no more and the desires of our hearts, that is to be in the presence of God forever, will be realized. And the new Jerusalem that comes out of heaven is the fulfillment of what the old Jerusalem was supposed to be. It will not be ruled by broken men but by the Alpha and the Omega. 
That's what we are to see in this passage. Additionally, I think we are to conclude, this world is not our home. Now, that doesn't mean that we just wait our time until glory comes on and I fly away. But rather is the sea that all of our hopes and dreams and peace and joy and happiness and hopes and all that, they can't be found here. Sports teams, relationships, hobbies, careers, educations, friendships, spouses, children, grandchildren, or the church can't be found here because this isn't our home. You can't take it with you. But if our home, if our citizenship is indeed in heaven, that will indeed affect how we relate to others here. Because now we have a calling. And that calling is to bring glory to God and honor to his name. We are called to love our neighbor and to seek justice until the new city comes. And when the new city comes, all of those things will be ultimately realized. So we we said that how a story ends really matters. So how this story ends really matters. If you will, turn with me in in, uh, conclusion. I know it's been long, but it's Revelation, so people pay attention better with Revelation anyways. And it's the last Sunday of the year, so... You don't have to worry about it next week. It's a new year, right? We have to be better people at the first of the year. Anyone else sign up for Planet Fitness for the first three weeks? Anyone? I'm kidding. But notice how the Bible ends. Let's just look at verse 12 of chapter 22. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and sexual immoral murders and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the synod of David, the bright and morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Isn't that a great ending to a story? Because now the ball is in our court. Will we come to the Alpha and the Omega, the Redeemer, who is our Creator? Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would give us the hope that